702. The Naked Scientist. Time for the Naked Scientist. 011-8830702. Your SMS is 31702. Your tweets at Rilebukhile M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons. And the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. All of your questions for the good doctor. Science related. And you can take your chance with anything else. Chris, is that okay? Can they take their chance with any other kind of questions? <laughs> I don't see why not. Hi, <laughs> you know, you just said people leaving babies behind. David Cameron, when he was prime minister in the UK, left his daughter in a pub once. What? His daughter Florence, when she was just a little, little, little tiny tot. They went out for a pub lunch. They all jumped in the car, drove off down the road. And then someone said, well, wh- where's she gone? <laughs> they realized they'd left her behind. They had to drive back up the road to pick up his daughter. How old so was even, she? Even the leader of the Conservative Party. Oh, she was about three, I think. Three or four. She was very small. Um, I don't think she was too bothered or traumatised. She seems to have done all right since. But, um, yeah, so, so it has happened even to people in the top end of their game who apparently running countries can still leave their daughters behind in the local hostelry. I mean, I, I think I saw a, a video of Kim Kardashian walking out of a building and there's always paparazzi filming her and her bodyguards are behind her and then she gets in the car. Two seconds later, she walks back in and walks out with her baby. <laughs> <laughs> But the crazy thing I thought is you with bodyguards that none of them think to say, listen, you're leaving your baby behind. Like, I didn't understand. It's not in the terms of conditions of employment, is it? I mean, they're employed to look after her. I mean, the baby, (laughs) she didn't pay for that. (laughs) All right. We're taking all of your questions. 0727021702. Let's go to the lines. Lerato in Soweto. Hi. Hi. Good. Thanks. And you? I'm good, thank you. So I wanted to find out about um, pork. So I, I love pork, and every time I eat it, maybe seven or eight days later, my tonsils start acting up. Mm. So I wanted to know what, how does that work? Is it directly linked to eating pork or something else? Mm. And uh, you're, you're one of That's many people I've heard who said that whenever they eat pork, they have issues with their tonsils. Just last week, my tonsils acted up, and I had pork, I think, First week of the month. Why offer stale Because all of So what I was saying to her, Chris, is why is she forcing to eat pork? And she's saying because pig is delicious. <laughs> there are lots of people who would be inclined to agree. I don't know the answer to this. It seems a funny timeline, though. Normally, when you have an allergic reaction to something that you eat, you're reacting to proteins which are in the food. And they're at highest concentration when the food is in your mouth. And it's a bit strange that it should kick in a week later or more. So I'm not really sure what's going on there or if perhaps something else is causing the tonsil reaction. And it's a coincidence that you happen to eat pork at the same time. I'll take this one away and see if I can find anything else out about this. I'm dubious it's an allergic reaction, though, because of the timeline. As I say, most allergic reactions would happen when the concentration of exposure is highest and therefore closest to the time that you're first exposed. But, you know, never say never in medicine. I'll see what I can find out for you. So question, Lerato, was there anything else that you were eating around the time when, when the reaction happens? No, um, I didn't even have... I remember I, I was trying to stay away from eating meat for, mm. that, for that time, but I couldn't, and I cooked pork shorties, and then a week later, I'm sick. Mm. 
Interesting one. You're going to have to tune in next week. The good doctor must do some homework in that regard. All right. uh, There's a WhatsApp that says, hi, 702. Pertaining burns, can you please ask Dr. Chris, why does it take time to feel a burn under feet than any other part of the body and the pain goes to the heart? The way we register pain in the body is that we have a population of cells, nerve cells, called C-fibers. They're the smallest nerve cells in the body. And when it comes to the nervous system, size really does matter because bigger nerves conduct information faster than smaller nerves. And if these nerves, being as small as they are, um, are therefore slower in transmission, there is a delay between when you first experience a noxious stimulus, something that will cause pain, and you registering that stimulus. It travels, uh, pain, pain information travels in these nerves at about half a meter a second. So therefore, there will be a delay if it's your big toe and your legs being much, much farther away from your central nervous system than, say, your hand is, probably twice as far. It will double the reaction time for your foot compared to your hand. It's still pretty fast, though, and it's more likely that, that actually it takes time for enough of the burning stimulus to get onto you to then do enough damage to then register. But certainly, those sorts of pain that does get conveyed more slowly by those classes of nerve cells. So that could be why this person experiences that apparent delay. Remember also that our perception of time when something like this happens does change because you tend to focus all of your attention on what's going on. And when that happens to you, you tend to to sort of slow down time in your mind because basically the number of snapshots you're taking of the experience is all focused on that particular occasion. And so your brain tends to distort how much time actually it took for something to happen. It's a bit like people saying when they had a car crash, time slowed down and they could see it all in slow motion. It's because you're registering so much information that your brain assumes a lot of time must have passed to get that much information in your consciousness so it dilates your experience of time to compensate and that that could be partly what's going on here as well so on that note then can i ask a question um when i was growing up i'd always remember that if i tested the pool water before jumping in like and i stuck my hand it wasn't as accurate as if it was were my foot (laughs) what's up with that (laughs) and then why do i use the elbow to check the temperature of baby's bath water Ah, right. Okay. Well, let's do that first one, that last one first, because what people generally do is swirl the bath round with their hand in order to make sure the water's mixed up thoroughly. Yes. But when you put your hand in something hot, you get used to it. So if the temperature of the bath climbed quickly uh, and your hand was in it, you won't have noticed that it went from cold to hot because you'll have got used to it with your hand and your Mm. hand will therefore be registering it's okay. If you use a different body part, and we classically use the elbow, but you could use the other hand that you haven't had in the water, that will be a more accurate measure of what it's like for the baby because that part of your body has not been in the water yet. So that is why we do that. And similarly, there's a really good experiment you can do to prove your other point, which is why is it that my foot would say one thing but my hand would say another about the temperature of the the bath or, or the pool or whatever? If you take a a bowl of hot water and a bowl of cold water and in the middle of those two you put a a bowl of water which is intermediate in temperature between the two, you put your hands in the two bowls to start with, one hot, one cold, and let your hands register the temperature and get used to it. If you then transfer your hands to the middle bowl, which is at an intermediate temperature, one hand will say, wow, this is hot, and the other hand, 
will say, wow, this is cold. And the hand that was in the hot water will think it's cold. The hand that was in the cold water will think it's hot. And the reason is the, the nervous system does not work on absolutes. It doesn't register an absolute set point. It's all relative. And this is because the nervous system is much more interested in how things are changing than how things are actually registering permanently. And it does this in order to alert you to things that you need to pay attention to because something is changing. It doesn't matter if, if the temperature stays constant. You don't need to continuously be informed about that. But if the temperature is climbing, something might be wrong. If the temperature is falling, something might be wrong. So you need to know about that. And that's why the nervous system is loaded towards noticing differences and adapting to the set point rather than just registering absolutes. All right, I got you. Let's go to Tracy in Rosessenville. Hi, Tracy. Hello, Rosessenville. How are you? Good, thanks. And you? I'm good. Uh, I'd like to ask you to the doctor that, that I mean, with COVID-19, uh, I mean, this is the virus, the virus that was causing havoc across the world and almost killing people like flies. But now all of a sudden I hear that even the British airlines, they are opening up for, for I mean, they are suspending the, to make it like uh, COVID-19 certificates, the basic requirements to fly with their airlines. And the, almost across the world, the virus is no longer such a threat to humanity as it was, I mean, almost two years ago. What happened to it? Has the virus transformed? Has it changed? Because it's almost no longer like a threat as it was like, mm. in it, yes, yes. All right, uh, doctor. A few things have changed. If you're living in China right now, you might think that it hasn't, though, because some countries, China among them, pursued a so-called zero COVID strategy. And when they were doing that, what they were doing was trying to keep the levels of virus as low as possible in, this, in, in society and therefore minimize transmission. By using various draconian measures, quarantining people, locking people up in their homes, the rest of the world, and China stands alone doing that now, went down a vaccine and what we call population immunity approach. The idea being that you do initially try to keep levels of virus really low with various measures, but in the background you're vaccinating people to as high a degree as you can and you focus your vaccination efforts on the most vulnerable people in society, the elderly people, people with pre-existing health conditions, pregnant women who might develop severe disease if they run into the infection. In this way, you then end up with a population that it's as though their immune system had been meeting the virus throughout their life. So when they do catch it, they get a very mild infection. So you build up that level of resilience in the population. At the same time, the virus is not a, a, a static thing. It's a moving target. It's an evolving entity. And it has evolved. And thanks to South African scientists, we've been able to spot the emergence of a number of variants that have become important on the world stage, including uh, most notably Omicron which was first picked up in South Africa. And as a result of, of the, uh, the investigations carried out in South Africa, it was noted that this was a difference in the behavior of the virus. It was transmissible, it was infecting people, but the level of consequences that were coming from cases was much, much lower. It subsequently spread all around the world, but when it ran into populations that were very highly vaccinated, very highly immune because of previous exposure to the infection, it's caused lots and lots of cases but it's not causing consequences at anything like the same rate. Good example of this, at the moment right now in the UK, about 3,000 people are in hospital with a diagnosis of coronavirus infection. But that's with the infection, not because of the infection. The number of people in intensive care is about 100. About a year ago, we had far fewer people in hospital with COVID 
and we still had 300 people in intensive care. So the link between catching the infection and becoming severely unwell has been very significantly reduced. And as a result of that, the confidence of populations and policymakers all around the world has changed. So people are now much more comfortable living with COVID rather than trying to stop COVID, although remaining non-complacent and making sure we keep an eye on what's happening, keeping measures coming in, samples coming in to keep testing them and see what the virus is doing and reminding people, please be careful about maintaining your immunity, especially if you're in an at-risk group by having boosters and vaccines and so on. Thank you so much. That makes complete sense. Let's go to Mpo in Soweto. Hi, Mpo. Hello. Yes, Mpo, go ahead. Mpo, can you please turn your radio off? Hi, how are you? Hi. Mpo, is your radio on? No, it's off now. Okay, perfect. Go ahead, Mpo. Okay. Uh, Can I ask the doctor, is it possible that the optic nerve can be repaired? Hi, Mpo. The answer is it depends what's happened to the optic nerve. There are a number of reasons why your optic nerve can get damaged. And the optic nerve, for people not familiar with it, this is the conduit of nerve fibres, the bundle of nerve fibres, about a million from each eye, which go from your retina, which is the light-sensitive patch of tissue at the back of the eye, into the brain. And they carry the visual message, what you're seeing, into the seeing parts of your brain. And there's a number of things that can go wrong. If you have pressure on the optic nerve, it can cause the uh, transmission of information from the eye to be interrupted, but it won't necessarily mean that if you repair the cause of the increased pressure, the, the things won't go back to normal. On the other hand, if there are things that physically damage the optic nerve or damage the nerve cells that make the optic nerve, sometimes the, the effect is going to be permanent. And this is because the brain and spinal cord are in part of what's called the central nervous system. And when we injure those, they don't repair themselves very well compared with, say, your fingers or your toes. If you injure the nerves there in the peripheral nervous system, they do tend to regenerate. So it will really come down to what's causing the problem, how severe that problem is, how long-standing the problem is, and if if it's done permanent damage or not as to whether or not it can recover. Thank you so much, Mpo, for that question. Bobo in Johannesburg South, hi. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? I'm good. I would like to ask the doctor about time travel. So lately I've been into these shows, what do they call them, science fiction shows. So mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure exactly. I watched one where they were talking about traveling into time and into different uh, universes. I'm not quite sure if is that something that's possible to happen or is there any tech at the moment that can do that or I, is, a, is it possible that can it be done right now in our timeline or in the time that we live in? That's my question for the doctor. All right. Thank you so much, Bobo. Doctor, time travel, is it well, possible? I, I, I am praying it is possible. I need to go fix some things in my past. You could argue we're all time travelers because we are moving forward in time right now and we're moving forward at the rate at which time ticks Mm -hmm. and if you're listening to this program time appears to race past because it's just so exciting and i'm I'm not being facetious either yeah um the the thing we haven't discovered how to do yet is how to make time go backwards 
We can change the rate at which time passes. There's a number of ways of doing that. And it's a fact that uh, your feet time passes differently for your feet than your head. And the reason for that is your feet are closer to the Earth's centre of gravity. Therefore, they're experiencing more gravity than your head is. And therefore, time is fasting, passing faster for your feet than it is for your head. But since the difference is down to the level of about 16 decimal places, it's not something the average person is going to notice any time soon. The same effect on time travel does effectively occur with satellites that are in orbit around the Earth. Because they are moving farther from the Earth's centre of gravity, but they're moving much faster to orbit the Earth, then when you take those effects into account, you have to adjust for the, the rate at which a clock ticks in space compared to the ground to make sure the time matches up. And that's how GPS works. That's how the satellites actually know how far away you are from them and to give you your correct position on Earth. So time can travel at different speeds for different people doing different things. And if you were to go next to a black hole, which is what happens in some of these sci-fi movies, time would certainly uh, slow down for you relative to everyone else in the universe. That's certainly true. But can we go backwards in time? We don't think so. Stephen Hawking famously said at one time, I don't think time travel is possible because otherwise we would have been invaded by tourists from the future. Uh, I don't know if, if, um, if anyone's got any evidence to counter that argument yet, but I've certainly not seen any. I, I don't think we'll be able to wind time back, although we definitely can move time faster forward depending upon what circumstances we put ourselves in. So maybe not a science question, maybe in my mind, prophesizing could be considered some kind of travel into the future in your imagination yes but not <laughs> in reality yes i hear you completely thank you so much silas in silver lakes hi hi hello how are you good thanks and you no i'm good i'm good can i ask the doctor man um, if one is running on um, the, the kidneys are running on on about 12 percent um is there any other thing except for dialysis that can increase the functionality of the kidneys? Mm. Hi, Silas. Well, um, there's a number of ways to, to A, stop the problem getting any worse. So the number one thing with any kind of kidney problem is to ask, why is this happening? What's the mechanism of the disease? What can we do to make sure that the situation does not get worse? Because that's a priority straight away to make sure a person doesn't deteriorate further. And then there's the question of, is the cause of their kidney function at all reversible? Is there something which has made it bad, which if we reverse it, will get better? And obviously a kidney specialist who knows the medical history will be able to advise on that. And then if a person uh, can, can't actually reverse the problem medically, then there are some other interventions. There's something called peritoneal dialysis, where people put fluid into their tummy cavity, and this prevents you having to stick tubes into blood vessels, and you exchange fluids across the linings around your intestines. And it works very well for a number of years for many people. If that fails, which in some cases it does, and it's not something you can do indefinitely, then you might have to go on to dialysis. But dialysis is regarded really as a holding measure because the gold standard is to try to give people a new kidney. Mm. And unfortunately, there are far more people waiting for a new kidney than there are kidneys available for people. But watch this space, because as we have reported, you know, in the past, doctors in America. Oh, uh, doctor, we seem to be losing you. Doctor? Doctor, we seem to be losing you. All right, let's take our last break and then we'll see if we can get the doctor back to us, uh, answer your questions. 702. The Naked Scientist. All right, let's quickly see. Doctor, are you still with us?
practically as well as metaphorically. Yep, I'm there. Okay, um, wonderful. You were yeah. you were finishing so I, about the you know the ideal is to get a new kidney, but there aren't that many available. There aren't that many available. But watch this space because doctors in America earlier this year made history by making a man uh, survive for two months with a pig's heart. This came from a special genetically modified pig that's been designed to be very compatible with the human immune system. They'd already done experiments on kidneys from the same batch of pigs and showed that these kidneys can be safely transplanted into people. So the next step will be to do this into people who need a kidney transplant. There were various aspects to that experiment that uh, meant that the people were, were not alive at the time. They couldn't do this on living patients. The next step would be to do this in living patients and they anticipate doing that quite soon. And if that works, then it does make a huge difference, potentially, to the number of people waiting for a kidney transplant. And I, and I definitely think that um, uh, we hope that that's what is going to be the case so that more people can have their lives saved and not living on dialysis or living waiting on a waiting list. Dr. Chris Smith, thank you so much for joining it's us from the nation.